right. Well, thank you so much. You can be seated if you're here in the room. Wasn't that great? I watched it first service and said, let's just play it again. <laughs> a song that's both uh, that's convicting, it brings some tears to my eyes, but also so encouraging to know that, that God is here. And, and yes, you know, those of us that are here at church, you know, this is God's house, the Father's house. But as a follower of Jesus, you, you're your Father's house as well. And when love is in the room... God is there, and, and God's doing his thing. So just what a great encouragement, and uh, we appreciate the worship team putting that together. Well, I have Sarah with me up on the stage. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. Sarah gets a woo, and that's good. We get a woo, a couple of woos even through that. And Sarah, thank you for being here today, and, and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, um, my husband, Mike, and my son, Matthew, and I joined the church about three years ago. And um, I am very uh, blessed to be working on our chaplain team, and also um, I'm a leader of the girls' seventh grade small group. All right. So you're involved in a couple of very valuable ministries. We love your work as a chaplain. You have such a heart for that, and you're so good for that. But I have to say, working with junior high girls, that's like bonus right there, right? That is a special gift to do that. So we so appreciate you and, and all you do. And yeah, again, some applause there works just fine. So thank you. So thank you so much for agreeing to come up today and do some reading for us as well, some scripture reading. We'd love sure. to turn that over to you. Okay. I get the privilege of reading our scripture verse today. Um, and it's uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, 15 through 18. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Thank you very much. Thank we you. so appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I I love a story with a happy ending. I don't know about you, but that's where I where I go. For every Romeo and Juliet that somehow connects with us in some way, there are many, many more stories that really have that feel-good thing, you know, that connects with our hearts and really puts us in a good place when it's done. It's, you know, it's kind of the triumph of good over evil and things like, you know, it's Lord of the Rings, whether you're a book reader or a movie watcher, it's Star Wars, it's that sort of stuff. It's, it's the, uh, the hero saving the maiden from that impossible situation, or frankly, in year 2020, it might just be that heroine saving the dude, right? I mean, that's kind of where we're at. It's, uh, it's the, uh, the rom-com formula comedy, really, that's there of the guy meets girl, boy meets girl, man, woman, and, and as unlikely as it may be, they, they somehow come together and fall in love. And then the confrontation, the conflict happens, and against seemingly impossible odds where they split up, somehow they end up miraculously back together, as if that's the way it was always supposed to be, and it ends with that, oh, almost always they're there. All these stories are there. It ends with a, and they lived happily 
ever after, right? And there's a reason why so many fairy tales end with they lived happily ever after, because we love a story with a happy ending. That's just a great place to go and a great place to be. Well, we, uh, we're looking at the ending of Nehemiah. We've been in this series for a while, and we're taking a look at the last chapter. And I would love, so love to tell you that Nehemiah ends with a they lived happily ever after. Uh, but it doesn't, and uh, we're going to delve into that today a little bit. You see, uh, Nehemiah has come to the city, and they have done this amazing wall rebuilding around the whole city in 52 days, and then they've reinstituted the laws. They've read scripture, and the people have come together, and they've understood, wow, we've really blown it here, and they've dedicated themselves to the Sabbath day and living morally and separating themselves from the pagan nations, and they're, you know, all the things in the temple gets going, and there's celebrations, and it's such a beautiful thing. They are set up for a, and they lived happily ever after, and if there wasn't a chapter 13, in Nehemiah, we could end that. We close the Bible book, go up and go, ah, that's a feel-good ending. Except that's just not the way that it is. Uh, because it goes in a different direction, and we see them ending up in a situation where they end up in, we'll just call it this, flat-out failure. It's failure on a personal, individual level, and it's failure on a national level, and it's huge, and it's extreme. And I've got to be honest with you, personal failure, if you think about it, it really stinks. Um, we'd rather not talk about it, but that's probably because it's real for all of us. If we say personal failure and look at ourselves, uh, we'd like to ignore it and pretend it's not reality. And I guess that denial is a bit of a personal failure on its own, isn't it? Right there, we're just, you know, ooh, ouch, it kind of hurts. But today, we're going to look at what happens when God's people take their eyes off of God and off his, his plans and his holiness and his call to holiness and we'll see what God wants to say to each one of us through our time together. Because I have to be honest, it's always easier to look at someone else's failure, right? And go, oh yeah, and point the finger. But we're going to look at the people there in Jerusalem and how Nehemiah reacts with this. But we're then going to allow that finger that's pointing out to point in a little bit as well. And say, God, maybe, no, I know you want me to grow through this as well. It's going to take me being honest with myself, maybe painfully honest. But we want to do that so we have a chance to grow through our failure. Well, let's consider Nehemiah 13. Uh, again, I want to, real quick little backdrop, I'm going to talk through the chapter because it's a little bit wordy and up and down. I'm going to explain everything to you. Chapter 13 goes this direction. See, after this wall-building success and the people are in a great spot and they're committed to God and the temple's up and running and they've got the Levites and the singers in place and the gatekeepers, everything's just going great. Nehemiah goes back to Babylon. He's been in Jerusalem about 12 years. Remember, the king had said, you can go ahead and go there and rebuild the walls. After 12 years... Nehemiah says, I'm needed back in Babylon. He gets called back, whatever. So he ends up traveling that 800 miles back to Babylon. And he spends, it doesn't tell us, but conjectures, figures, people are guessing about 10 to 15 years now, as long as he was in Jerusalem, back there in Babylon. Now, it's not like he can sit down and just get texts about how things are going and everything like that, right? He's checking out social media. What's happening in Jerusalem? It's not that way. It's 800 miles. I, you know, carrier pigeon, too far for that over the desert. I don't know that he gets much of a word. Maybe he gets a letter to you that says things like, things are fine here. How are you? You know, he has no idea what's going on, but finally he gets a chance to re return. He gets to go back to Jerusalem. And I can just picture him traveling, you know, camelback or whatever. He's going back over the desert, 800 miles. It takes days and days and days and days to get there. And he's just excited. I get to reconnect with the people of God. I get to see this place where God used me in this huge triumph. The walls were built in record time. And, and then the people are embracing God and everything's just going so well. And he, I, I just picture maybe there's joy in his heart, but a tear in his eyes. He sees the wall of Jerusalem as he comes in. And then he gets a chance to enter in Jerusalem, and he finds 
He finds a mess. He finds a disgusting mess, and it just breaks his heart. All those commitments that Pastor Mark told us about from uh, chapter 10 a few weeks ago, all those commitments about remaining holy and all the things we've talked about here, the things that they're going to do, all those things are just shattered. They're just thrown apart in that 10 to 15 years, and he's just blown away. He sees things like this. He comes up to the temple, and, and uh, Eliashib, want to try that one out? Don't name your kid that. Lots of persecution there. Eliashib is the high priest of the temple. And uh, so he comes up. Is he just a priest or the high priest? Are there two Eliashibs in the temple? Uh, doubtful, but maybe it's the case. But we're referred to Eliashib the priest here. He is overseeing the court, the storerooms of the temple, among other things. And he's made a decision. He's made a bad decision. I'll say it right here. Is that one of the rooms, in fact, it turns out it's actually a series of rooms, almost a suite, have been cleaned out. What was stored in there were um, tithes and offerings, the grain offering for the sacrifices that were done, and also the tithing that the people did of grain and wine and oil. That was for the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers. So they could work full-time doing the temple service. They couldn't be out farming and doing other things. If people would tithe those things, they would store it, and that's what would go to keep them alive. That would be their food. That would be their sustenance. These rooms have been cleared out. They're no longer carrying the offerings, the tithes. They're not that, and instead there's somebody living there. In the courts of the house of God, there is a man, at least one that we know of, that's actually been permitted by Elijah, in fact, invited to actually live there. He's living inside the temple, in God's courtrooms, in, in God's court. It's crazy how this happened. And now I want to tell you the very worst part of this. The man in there, his name is Tobiah. If you've been walking with this through the book of Nehemiah, you're going to go, wait, that name sounds familiar. He appears multiple times. Tobiah and Sanballat were two of Nehemiah's and the people of Jerusalem's biggest enemies. They are foreign. They're leaders of the foreign people around. Uh, Sanballat is called a Horonite, and, and Tobiah is an Ammonite. They're leaders of the native people. They were the people that were trying to kill Nehemiah to keep him from building the walls. They were the people that were putting the armies together to go attack them while they were building the walls. Remember the last time I spoke, I got to talk about dealing with persons these are the bad guys and Tobiah is not only sneaking into the city he's actually living there and he's living where no one else is living in the temple in this courtroom how's Nehemiah feeling about this it's crazy it doesn't make any sense on top of that since all the things are cleared out the offerings and the tithes probably the offering system the worship system the sacrifice system isn't working smoothly if maybe at all and not only that but the uh Nehemiah 13 tells us that the Levites and the singers, the people that are there to serve God, they have no way to survive, so they've left the city, and they're trying to figure out how to find some land and farm so they can just stay alive. No more praise God, wave my arms in the air and sing. I'm just trying to figure out how to plant some seed, grow some food to keep my family alive. They're out of there. This whole thing is horrific. Well, not only that, but Nehemiah looks around, and the Sabbath comes up. He sees, that's what, uh, what Sarah had a chance to read, he sees the people just not honoring the Sabbath. The Sabbath is supposed to be a day to honor God from sundown to sundown, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown is the Sabbath. And people were gonna, not going to work. They're not going to do anything but honor the Lord. And yet he's seeing them. They're treading the wine prices. They're making wine and they're, they're buying and selling goods and they're traveling. They're doing all these things that, that they're not supposed to do. And that 10 to 15 years ago, they said, we're not going to do those things. But he sees it happening. He sees foreigners coming into the city on the Sabbath and actually selling goods and services that's going on and all this stuff. And he's like, wait, what else is going on? And what grieves his heart perhaps even more than all of this is the fact that he finds out that the people of Israel, the people there in Jerusalem, 
have indeed started to intermarry with the pagan nations. Again, something that they swore that they would never do. They're going to remain separate. Not This is nothing racial. It's not like an Ammonite's a bad person or something like that. This is, we need to keep our, our nation separate because this pagan nation, every time we intermarry, they pull us into the worship idol, idol worshiping idols, and they pull us away from God. So we need to keep a distance that this is really going to say we need to reserve ourselves for the worship of God. And he finds out because he sees kids playing in the street, except they're speaking foreign languages. Why are there kids in Jerusalem speaking foreign languages? Ah, your mama, she's an Ammonite. Ah, your mama, she's an Arab. The kids are speaking mom's language. They don't even, they don't even know Hebrew. And he's like, something's wrong here. And he finds out, sure enough, they've intermarried, including Sanballat, the bad guy, one of the two bad guys with Tobias. His, let me see if I can get this right. His daughter has married the grandson of this same Eliashib, the priest. So not only is it kind of on the fringes, this is actually the priests themselves and the, their families are intermarrying with the pagans. At this point, Nehemiah is about done, right? I mean, he is, he's seen all of this, and he says, this is just crazy. These commitments, they're just out the window, and this isn't going to work. Well, this is what he encounters, and so we're talking today about dealing with, yes, failure on a, on a national level, but more specifically, dealing with personal failure, and, and, and not just to talk about Israelites, but about ourselves as well. How do we deal with and face up to and, and move past sin and failure in our own lives? So we're going to take a look at that. Here's your chance now to, we've talked to kind of give you some background and get some things going. If you want to take some notes, we've got a number of points to fill in on your outlines. If you're online, you can, you know, download your outline there. If you're in the room, if you want to fill in some of these blanks, there's a fair amount of points because there is so much here. I had to leave a lot of stuff out. And if I get speaking fast, I'll try to dial it down. But I feel like God has a lot to say to us today. And I will tell you this, it's not always going to be comfortable. I would love to give a message that's just all smiles and yippee ki That's why we started with the happily ever after, because that's not where this goes. It's going to end, I'll tell you this, a little, little, you know, little thing to look ahead. It's going to end with the Lord. And it's going to end with forgiveness and grace. But we're going to walk through some kind of junk in the process. So dealing with our own sin and failure, first of all, as we do that, we'll see in them, but we want to see in us. First of all, we need to know that God takes our obedience seriously. We need to know that God takes our own personal obedience seriously. So Nehemiah obviously expressed that, and we're going to look at that in detail. He experiences this incredible amount of righteous anger over God being so, not just kind of pushed around, but just massively dishonored and disobeyed by the people. He, Nehemiah, knows that God cares about obedience with these people. He knows that. Well, I think in this day here, we're in the 21st century, and, and as followers of Jesus, we focus so much on love and acceptance and grace. And I think that's great, by the way. We know that Jesus has come to set us free from the law of sin and death, and I think that's awesome. But I think also that we think that God doesn't really care much about what we do, at least not that much. I, and I have to tell you, that's faulty thinking. It's faulty thinking, and it's not what Scripture tells us. Yes, the Bible says that God looks at the heart. The heart is by far what's most important, yes. But what the Bible also says is that what is in the heart is what comes out of a person, right? What's in there is what comes out of a person. So a right heart will show up in right thoughts, in right words, right attitudes, and right actions. That's obedience, we're not being judged by our behavior, like earn your salvation, or you're going to get into heaven, you, you have to do these things by your behavior. It's not that. It's just that if you love God, you're going to 
you're going to show your relationship, your love, your understanding and your, of knowing God. Your behavior is going to demonstrate that. So it's not earning it, it's demonstrating it. And Jesus himself comments on it in John 14, 15. He simply says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He says, it's right there. Part of your love, your love for me is going to show me that you're going to want to do, you're going to want to be like me. You're going to want to follow me. You're going to want to obey me. That's going to be a demonstration of your love. And, and, and that's there. So, so God cares about our obedience. And the second thing is in dealing with our own sin and failure, we need to take our obedience seriously. It's not just God that's a part of this. And of course, that's what's most important. But we need to take our obedience seriously. Look, if it's serious to God... I think it should be serious for me as well. And so I want to take it seriously. It just starts with an attitude there. Isaiah 32, 8 says, but the noble man makes noble plans and by noble deeds he stands. It doesn't say, but, and, and this noble word can be translated in different ways, uh, you know, even godly. But the godly person, the one who wants to please the Lord, who is of noble character, the noble person, he makes, he and she makes noble plans, says this is important. And then by noble deeds, he occasionally tries to do what he thinks is right. But the rest of the time he fluffs off. It's not what it says, is it? Noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. It's there, it's obedience, it's important. We need to understand that we, we should care about that. Now, in our desire to pursue obedience, it's important to know, first of all, to know that decisions can be easy to make. Decisions can be easy to make, but so hard to keep. And there's a number of reasons why we find ourselves sometimes falling into decisions that maybe aren't weighed appropriately or at least enough it's easy sometimes to make an emotional decision because it feels right you know it just man it feels good at the time so we jump into that it's in our excitement we're like yes or sometimes oh conviction i need to change there's an emotional thing and a response here it pushes into a quick emotional decision and there's also peer pressure, you know, kind of like, hey, the whole group's doing it, and, and so we just kind of find ourselves making the same decision as others. I think of students, uh, ministry students at a, at a high school camp for whatever, or whatever grade, but a camp, and, you know, you have a week of fellowship and great times together and hearing from God, and, and then towards the end of the week, there's a chance to, like, anybody who wants to follow Jesus for the first time or recommit to Jesus, stand up or raise your hand, and, like, you look around, and everybody's doing it. It's like, yeah, I'm into it, too, and so we all just kind of jump up and, and go for it, and it happens because it's a group thing. Uh, even with adults at a large place like a, a historic Billy Graham crusade or the many people that do crusades, sometimes it, what helps you to raise your hand and to go forward is the fact that, wow, look at all these other people. I guess I can do this too. And it becomes a group decision. Now, I, the Holy Spirit, let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is moving and I'm not saying that those decisions aren't real. Okay, because you may have been, that may have been your first time decision, was it a camp or a crusade or something. I'm not saying they're not real at that point. It's just that you can sometimes see that a decision is easier to make when you get swept up with emotion or with kind of the group thing and you've made a decision. But here's the deal. Life decisions can be made in large groups. Life decisions can be made in large groups in a moment of excitement or conviction. But life change usually takes place over time and it almost always takes another person or a small group for encouragement and accountability. It takes someone to walk the road of life with you to help that commitment grow into a life reality. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But I want you to understand, life decisions can happen in a, small, in a, in a large group in a moment. Life change takes time and usually happens with other people around you. And that's just something important to know. Sometimes also decisions are easy to make but hard to keep because a person didn't consider the cost. You know, boy, it just that sounds great. I'm in. You know, ooh, I like how the way that sounds. Oh, oh wait, it, it's going to cost me what? 
away. And I, maybe I didn't realize that. I, maybe I signed up too fast. It's not what I signed up for, you know. It's kind of the timeshare trap. <laughs> what a great deal. I'm into it. Oh, what did I just do? What is that going to imply in my life? That can happen sometimes. I don't consider the cost. So uh, I'm, I'm not saying don't make decisions. I'm just starting by saying that realize that decisions can be so easy to make sometimes and yet so hard to keep. Well, I want to take a look at Nehemiah to see what we can learn about turning these decisions and commitments into actual obedience, taking this moment into something that becomes something lasting. So we're going to look at that, both for Nehemiah's people, the Jerusalem people, and for us today, more importantly. Well, first of all, to turn decisions and commitments into obedience, first, the encouragement is don't get overconfident and complacent. And I used an SAT vocabulary word there on purpose because I wanted to kind of focus on it. Complacent means self-satisfied. Complacent means I've got this so dialed in that I can just relax and it's not a big deal. I got this handled. And we kind of take our attention off of it. You see, we see Nehemiah leaving Jerusalem with the people on this spiritual and emotional and physical high. They are like, yes, God, we're here. But as is too often the case, they end up, um, they take their focus off of things and they, their focused attention off of God and off of their commitments. And they find themselves saying, I got this, no problem, right? They get self-satisfied. They, they think that they have it dialed and they lose interest and then they fall. Then <laughs> they just fall. There it is. There's a great warning verse that addresses this in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It says this, so if you think you are standing firm, complacent, got it dialed, be careful that you don't fall. So if you think you got this handled, this is scripture talking to you. If you think you have it handled, you've got this dialed, be careful that you don't fall. See, you stop trying too often to keep yourself sharp. sharp. And you end up stop praying and you stop being aware and you stop putting on the armor of God, at least in that area of weakness that you were so sharp on, because you got this. Your focus wanders. And as we lose that desperate reliance on the Holy Spirit, which is what keeps us in the right place, that awareness of the constant weakness of our flesh, we wipe out. It can happen. Have you found that to be true in your life? You know, maybe you've made a commitment somewhere. You stayed with it for a while, but, you know, then it just kind of became, yeah, I got this, and your, your, your focus kind of wandered. And you get complacent, and you get comfortable, and you relaxed a bit, and the enemy just kind of pounces. He just grabs. And the warning here is don't get overconfident and don't, con- don't get complacent. If it's important to God and important to you, you got to stay on it. And you got to ask God, help me stay on this. Next, to turn commitments into obedience, the next thing is we need to know the importance of accountability. Know the importance of accountability. Now, we talked about this a few minutes ago, but I want to kind of expand upon that because we'll see this here as we think about what happened in Nehemiah's day. Um, See, the accountability issue is that we want godly people around uh, you to help you walk the road of life as you practice the commitments that you made and and the commitments you want to honor because we need that in our lives, someone who can speak truth, of love into our lives, someone we can confess to, someone we can share with, someone who can call us on our sin if it comes to that. There are sometimes encouraging and exhorting messages like, you know, way to go, you can do it. That accountability person, I'm your biggest fan, I know you can do this, you've done it before. Even if you haven't, I know you can. Sometimes that's awesome. Other times that accountability person is one who says, you got off the road. You got off the road, and sometimes it takes a kick in the backside to bring you back. Hey, over here, man, you're blowing it. I, got, I love you, but you needed a kick. 
Well, I want to take a look at Nehemiah 13 here to kind of see this in action, Nehemiah providing the accountability, because things fell apart in Jerusalem when Nehemiah was gone. They, they didn't have accountability. They almost felt like Nehemiah's not here, nobody's watching, like, hello, God's here, and God's watching, right? But they missed that, and so uh, they, had to, they, they didn't have the accountability and someone to call them when they went off the path. So Nehemiah provided that kick in the pants when he came back. And it's pretty, I'll tell you now, it's pretty extreme, but it's the kick in the pants. And it's what the people needed to see how seriously they had offended God. This wasn't small stuff. I want to read you some verses out of Nehemiah 13, starting at verse 23. It says, In those days also I, Nehemiah, saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Remember, we talked about that. And I confronted them, and here we go. I cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> Is that a kick in the pants? I'd, I'd rather have a kick in the pants than that, right? And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters, to, uh, daughters for your sons or for yourselves. <laughs> anyone wanna, anybody want to sign up for that level of accountability? I want the Nehemiah plan. Will you come please beat me and pull out my hair when I really blow it? It's pretty extreme, isn't it? But that's really what's here. We say, I don't want that accountability, but here's the deal. If the people of Jerusalem had had that level of accountability all the way through all those years, they never would have gotten to the place that they got to. They never would have needed that big kick because the corrections and the encouragement would have happened on the way. So it's only because of that gap and the lack of accountability that it got to that point. And then it turns into hair pulling and yelling and all that kind of stuff that needed to happen. If we want to turn our commitments into obedience, we need to know the importance of accountability, having a person in, or some people in your life to encourage you and to walk with you, to share with you, to grieve with you, to confess to you, and yes, to sometimes pull a little hair. That's just what's there, right? Well, third, to turn commitments into obedience, when you recognize your sin, deal with it immediately and completely. Don't tolerate it. Deal with it immediately and completely. And this starts by saying when you recognize your sin, because the truth is sometimes we just don't. We are amazingly blind to our own sin. We are amazingly visual when it comes to someone else's sin. <laughs> boy, do I see yours, and boy, do I see yours. I, I purposely pointed at no one there. Um, but we're amazingly blind when it comes to our own sin, and that's, again, why it's important to have somebody in your own life who can help you see for yourself. But when you do see it, once you see it, be honest about it and deal with it right away and deal with all of it, not just some of it, deal with all of it so you can actually receive full forgiveness and give full forgiveness. We see in Nehemiah 13 in verse 7, again, Nehemiah is one of these stories that I mentioned to you, but we'll flesh it out. It says, I, Nehemiah, then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. Remember we talked about that? preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. <laughs> Here goes Nehemiah. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and with the frankincense. You see, we see Nehemiah take immediate action here. He didn't prepare, he didn't propose a discussion time with Eliashib to talk over the reasons why. Eliashib, let's get, to, Eliashib, let's get together for lunch and let's 
talk about maybe what motivated you to make this decision and maybe if that was the one. He didn't do that. This was so egregious. It was so big. It was so offensive that it was time to just deal with it now. And he says, you know what? This is not the time for diplomacy. I need to deal with it. We've recognized it. And he goes in there and he just starts chucking the furniture out. And I love this. I, I, I see pictures of Jesus in the temple overturning the tables. He's so disgusted. This is not how we treat the father's house. Now, this is before Jesus came, but we get a pre-Jesus picture in Nehemiah. I just see him in there. Any piece of furniture that's small enough, he can actually pick up. Nehemiah, by the way, is they're guessing about 65 years old at this point. So he's not a young dude, but he's in there. He's picking up. He's just chucking them out the door. Throw the furniture out of here. This does not belong here. I don't care if it breaks. Get out of the way. I'm cleaning this place up. And off it goes. But see, Nehemiah doesn't just stop with cleaning out the room. He now says, deal with it immediately, but deal with it completely. We now need to clean this thing up. We need to sanitize it. He gets a team in there, and they start cleaning. And what do we need to do? We need to get the grain offering back in, and we need to get the tithes and bring them back into the storehouse so that we can get the singers and the Levites back to doing what they're supposed to be doing. We need to get this all into place, deal with it completely. Nehemiah, he was a whirlwind of passion and activity for the Lord here, and it's amazing to see what's going on. And I have to ask myself, and I'd ask you, are you, are we willing to take those steps with sin in our own lives? Is there some furniture that needs to be tossed out, some rooms in your heart that need to be sterilized and rededicated to God? You know, God intended it for this, but I kind of allowed it to kind of slack, and it's kind of being used for mm, something else. It's time to recognize it with some help, perhaps, and then deal with it now and directly and completely. You see, don't just throw out the old and leave an empty room. Bring in what God intended. It's two parts to that. God says, I want you to finish that off. I want you to take the next step. Well, fourth, to turn commitments into obedience. We want to remember the past. We want to remember the past as motivation. So it's helpful very often to look back to the past. And several times in the chapter, uh, in this chapter, Nehemiah refers the people of Israel to their past to remind them of what happens when they go down the wrong road. And one, uh, one he says in Nehemiah 13, 18, he says, Did not your fathers act in this way? Do you remember this? <laughs> and did not our God bring all the disaster on us and on this city? Now you're, now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And he's doing that in several places. He's looking to the past and saying, Whoa, why do you think it's going to be any different? Keep doing the same ridiculous, I'll use the word stupid thing. The results are going to be the same. And when we can look back honestly at destructive patterns from our past, it can warn us away from making the same mistakes in the future. You know, the last time I did that, the last 17 times I did that, it ended bad. I think we're headed there again. But also when we look back at positive things from the past, that can be helpful too. Ways that God has moved and blessed and rewarded us, it can really be motivation for us. So the past can be a warning, or it also can be a motivation to keep us persevering and being obedient from our own past, but also we can look at Scripture, and we can look at other people's lives and go, wow, look how God has honored this. Look how God, you know, look how things have gone sideways based on this, and follow that. Allow the past to both warn and motivate you. That's encouragement. Well, next then, to turn commitments into obedience, we want to build in habits and practices that make it easier to honor God and harder to sin. This is going to take some effort and some time. We want to build in some habits and some practices, change what we're doing and how we're doing it. It's going to make it easier to honor God and harder to sin. These are some practical things, not just, you know, idea-wise. Well, I'm going to make a commitment. Good, but let's practically take some steps. 
You see, if you've had a bad problem of sin, you need to build an opposite pattern. Don't just try to stop the, the, bad, you know, the bad one. We see Nehemiah doing this regarding the people breaking God's Sabbath law. They were, they were uh, working and buying and selling goods and food, all sorts of things that, that God had forbidden on the Sabbath, things that 10 to 15 years ago they said, absolutely, God, we're on board with that. We will not dishonor you in your Sabbath day. Uh, but Nehemiah put some things in place then. He didn't just say, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. He said, stop it. God wants you to stop it. And now let's put some things in that's going to make it easier for you to honor God and harder for you to make that sin. He put these things in place. Nehemiah, again, starting in verse 19, it said, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, so this is the Friday night, because the Sabbath for them was Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. As soon as it starts to get dark, here's here's what he did. I commanded that the doors of Jerusalem and the gates should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares, they lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. They did that because uh, they had been able to sell and come in for how many years? Who knows? But they're like, well, maybe things will change. And so they're just kind of hanging out. Nehemiah says this. He sees them lodging outside Jerusalem. And he's, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. (laughs) Now, I loved it. Nehemiah, I don't know if he's big, burly dude, or if he's got a bunch of soldiers around him with bows and arrows and spears or just what, or maybe they've already heard. This is a guy that already chucked Tobiah, that leader of the Ammonites. He just threw all his stuff out, and the guy ran for his life. And said, we don't want to mess with Nehemiah, you know. I love this. I will lay hands on you, you know. But he got, got the job done. It says, they are there no more. But see, here's the key. He didn't, again, just say to the people, try to do better and then just stand back and and pray that they did it. He made it hard to break the Sabbath and he made it easier to honor God in the Sabbath just with the practical patterns he set up. It's true. You aren't going to buy and sell goods on the Sabbath if there are no goods and services to buy. You aren't going to stomp grapes if no one's bringing grapes in for you to stomp on the Sabbath. See what I'm saying? Put these things in place that made it easier then we're going to stop the activity that distracted you and allow you to focus on God. And that's so true for us. We need to build in habits and practices that make it easier to honor God and harder to sin in those areas, especially those areas of our own weaknesses. We need to put in place whatever measures are needed, even if they seem extreme, folks. If we need it, we need it so we can get on and so we can go on a different path. And I think about that, that illustration. I've used it, and I've read it as well. It's like if you made a decision to eat healthy, you know, I need to really get eat healthy and really clean up my diet, but you're a donut addict. And as you drive from home to work, you go right by the primo donut shop in town. Every time you buy, you, you often stop on the way to work and buy a couple dozen donuts because it's for your work employee and your, your you know, co-workers, right? And maybe they'll even get a few. So you make the decision to stop buying donuts, but every time you start driving by the donuts, it just, it just kind of tugs you in, the smell and the thought, maybe I'll just get a half dozen today, you know, whatever. I got an idea for you. Change the way you drive to work, right? Don't drive by the donut shop. Now, I'm not saying that you will never buy a donut again, but if you don't drive by the donut shop and you drive a ways away, 
Remember I mentioned that it might be extreme. It might take you a couple extra miles, and in the long run, it's going to cost you a couple extra dollars of gasoline. But if it's going to help you keep your commitment and do what you decided is right, it's worth doing. So build in practices into your donut. By the way, I'm not against donuts. That's just an example. After first service, and people, well, I like donuts. Run with me here, you know? Whatever it is that you've made the decision about, and we see in Nehemiah here, he made, it a, he made a way to say, I'm going to make this easier to honor God, and I'm going to make it harder to sin. Just practical things that we can do, rather than just try harder. You know, just plug your nose when you drive by the donut shop and play the music loud and don't look. Drive a different way. Well, a few more quick thoughts. Um, there's so much in here. I just These are quick little comments, but you'll fill in the blank and we'll move on. A few more things that we see here that are so important. Next, exchange what feels good for the moment for what is right and is good for eternity. We want to exchange that, oh, but it feels so good for the moment. Well, okay, what we want to do is we want to do what is good, not just for the moment, but for eternity. You know, those things that are there, we, we need to step back and take the longer view, the eternal view, which is God's view and the true perspective. And it's going to help us get past that moment that, that entices us for now. I could just picture the Israelites. You know, there's an Israelite dude, and he looks over, and he sees this Ammonite chick, and for the moment, he's like, man, she's pretty cute. And, you know, I, God isn't really for it, but, you know, she's pretty cute. <laughs> you know, feels good for the moment. I'm going to bring her into my household or whatever. I'm like, wait a second. Stop. Back up and go, what you're doing now is going to impact you and your family and even the nation for generations and, in a sense, for eternity. Oh. Maybe I need to rethink that. Maybe I need to rethink that donut. I mean, you know, whatever, whatever level that it is, see the impact there. Not just what feel good for now, but for eternity. Next, beware of compromise. Beware of compromise. And we saw that here so much because sin and sin patterns often don't happen immediately. Tobiah didn't move into the temple courtroom the day after Nehemiah left. In fact, Eliashib and the, and the Levites and everybody, they would have been outraged. But years later, whatever changed, little by little by little, and the friendship developed, and then, and then one thing led to the next to the next. And all of a sudden, we ended up at a place that we never thought that we'd be. Sin grows over time, little by little, and so that small compromise, it doesn't seem too bad. It becomes bigger and bigger and then becomes huge and destructive. So you ask yourself this, am I truly walking with God or am I walking down that subtle, gradual, downward slope? It's small. I, it almost feels flat. Maybe it's a little bit down, but it leads me further from God and towards my destruction. Am I truly walking with God or am I headed down that subtle slope that doesn't seem so bad but it's going to take me away? Well, next then, the Holy Spirit is needed for commitment to turn into true, lasting obedience. We're talking about commitments turning into obedience. The truth is, the people of that day, yes, accountability, yes, patterns, all the things we've talked about, but because Jesus hadn't yet come, they, they, weren't, they didn't have the Holy Spirit to live inside of them. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and he not only convicts you of sin and says, oh boy, look out, this isn't God's best for you, but he gives you a desire to change, and then he gives you the power to actually do it. Folks, that's our only opportunity, not through, I'm going to just try harder. It's through falling flat on our face, getting on our knees, and just relying on Holy Spirit. I need you to see me through, to give me the desire and the power to make this happen. I submit to him every day. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you every single morning and every single way. Allow him to lead you through the darkness and into the light. And finally, Know that God's grace and forgiveness is always there to give you a new start. 
Know that God's grace, and take comfort in this, his grace and forgiveness is always there to give you a new start. You know, I had to close with this one because the people of Jerusalem were able to receive this, even in the midst of getting some hair pulled out and stuff. But they received God's grace and God's forgiveness, and we can receive that as well. And I close with this because it'd be easy to leave right now kind of depressed. Oh, man, all these little cruddy things in my life, and oh, my goodness, all these things that I have to do, and I've, I've blown it so bad, you know. But see, here's the deal. The issue isn't will you sin. The issue is what will you do when you do sin. You get that? It's not will you sin. It's what, what are you going to do when you do sin. And we have to deal with it. God has given us the path out to admit the sin and have a desire to turn. Holy Spirit, give me that, right? To seek and receive forgiveness and allow God to cleanse us and fill us. And with Jesus, we get a new start. And that is huge. So your last little thing in your outline is this. It's direct application time. If you're a follower of Jesus, again, you have that relationship with Jesus. The question is, where have you allowed a Tobiah to take up residence in the temple of your spirit? Where do you maybe have a Tobiah yourself? We look at their story and go, how could they do that? I got a feeling sometimes we could look at our own lives and our hearts and go, mm, how could I do that? Have you failed at any commitments lately? <laughs> Have you been disobedient even though you promised God you'd be faithful? Because sin enters our lives through the weakness and willfulness of the flesh. And, and like Tobiah, sin slowly moves in and takes up residence in the temple of our spirit, and it pollutes us in the process. We get there. And so the sins of things like lust and pride and bitterness, envy and greed, even hate, gossip and lying and stealing it's it's compromised morality those little steps we take that become bigger steps it's allowing deceit and dishonesty to be a part of your life i know it's often a slow side into that clinging sin that we never wanted to tolerate and yet it's there now you know it's there now in a bigger way than we wish and it's not just pollution of the world sin by the way because i thought you know you may be sitting here going John, I worked hard and I relied on God a lot. I live a pretty clean life. It's other things that can be the Tobiah in your life. Would you listen? It's also a lack of trust in God. It's, it's discontent. It's worry. It's fear. If those things have a grip in your life, those are things that don't allow God to be God in your life. So the Tobiah in your life might not be a pornography addiction or some huge thing that's there. It might not be this bitterness that, get, you know, some huge, it might simply be, I'm a worrier. There's a room that is, should be dedicated to God that God is Lord of, and yet you've allowed your worry and your fear to be the Lord of that room. God says, kick Tobiah out. Let's get this back to being a temple room where the tithes and the offerings and the goodness of God can fill it. Name the sin, confess it, deal with it the ways we've talked about and the ways Nehemiah demonstrated and receive God's forgiveness and grace. We cleanse the temple. We allow God to do that and to pick us up and to dust us off. I want to encourage you to allow God to hug you like his beloved child because if you know and love Jesus, that is who you are. That's who you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, this morning. We've, we've had a bunch of weeks of looking at Nehemiah, and we've learned so much, and, and we, we look at an ending today that's far from pretty. And God, yet the truth is it parallels our own lives a little bit. 
Father, I, I rejoice that truly at the very end of Nehemiah, because your grace and your forgiveness is evident, it really is a happy ending. Their actions were not, Lord, but the fact that you are God and that you love them in spite of this, God, is, is, is a victory. Father, I just pray that for each one of us, if, if, if we would open our eyes, that you would allow us to see that small or large Tobiah area in our lives. And there may be more than one, God, that you are saying, I want to clean that. I want to cleanse that. I want, I want to allow you and help you to be all that you've been created to be. And God, we just give that to you as followers of Jesus. And if you've not yet given your life to Jesus, that's where it starts, to be able to ask him to forgive you, and to ask him to lead your life, admitting that you can't do it on your own. Jesus, Son of God, God himself, come into my life and cleanse me, forgive me, and lead me. Lord, we desire clean lives simply to represent you and to show how much we love you, not to earn anything, but to receive your love. In Jesus' name, amen.